So it's much more important when leading a team to give them clarity than to wait to make sure that it's perfect. Because I think all too often we get to 80% and we stall waiting for that 20% of certainty. And the reality is we don't get there and there's a cost to stalling. This is SaaS Scaled, the podcast where data meets action with host Armand Shraki. Each week, Armand will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector, giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS Scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at curve.com. That's q r v e y.com. Hello, we are starting another episode at SaaS Scaled, and I'm pleased to have Steven Schneider with me, a good friend. We know each other for a while and a person that I admire from many different aspects. Thank you, Steven, for joining us today. Thank you so much, Armand. I appreciate it. And it's great to see you again. As you said in the introduction, I think we've known each other for 12, 14 years now at this point, and it's great to reconnect. <laughs> And Steven is a CEO at Capital Canary. It's a company based in DC area. And I think it was rebranded to Capital Canary probably less than a year ago. And what was the name before then that? Well, it's, it's more, more recent than less than a year ago. We actually rebranded only about two and a half months ago. So relatively recently. The company that's now known as Capital Canary was originally a company called phone to action but we had acquired two other companies about a year ago, one called GovPredict and one called Nohu. So it's really the bringing together of all three of those companies that necessitated a rebrand to Capital Canary. Okay, fantastic. So tell us a little bit about yourself and then about the company as well and what kind of problems you are addressing. So as you mentioned, my name is Steven Schneider. I'm the CEO of Capital Canary. Most recently, previous to this, I was the CEO of a company called Logi Analytics, formerly known as Logi XML, the company that you founded many years ago. From a background standpoint, I have an undergraduate degree in computer science. I went and did my MBA in California. I took on a lot of different roles at software companies, learning, learning how to build and run a software company. I've been a VP of marketing twice. I've been on the technology side a number of times. I've run sales for five or six years. So really built up my capabilities across all the different functions of a business and have seen what B2B software companies look like at 5 million, 10 million, 20 million, 40 million, 50 million, and gotten a sense of kind of what good looks like. I'm based here in the DC area, uh, married, two kids, all that sort of fun stuff and having a good time. So you had asked about what, what Capital Canary is. Well, Capital Canary is a private equity backed software company that works with government affair teams to help give them the edge to win their policy battles. And we do that with, through two main offerings. First, we offer them a suite of intelligence tools that lets them understand kind of what is happening in the regulatory and legislative space, who is involved in that stuff that's happening, and how it may affect them. And we do that through offering both legislative tracking information, so information on what's happening across 10,000 municipalities across the country, uh, from everything from 
right away on you know road construction to more substantive issues such as antitrust or regulation at a federal level. And then we also offer contact data. So we track over 100,000 individuals across all manners of legislative and regulatory bodies across the country and staffers so that when something pops up that may affect a particular organization or they care about it, they know who to call. The second thing that we do, and this is really our roots as Phone to Action, is we offer a product called advocacy. Well, what is advocacy? Well, it allows organizations to find individuals that may be aligned to issues that that organization cares about to activate them and get them engaged and to speak on their behalf or to speak on their own behalf in support of a particular issue, often contacting legislators. So that could be, for instance, uh, a desire to offer alcohol in a particular state or county. It could be to stand up and support investment in cardiovascular health uh, that a nonprofit may care about or whatever it may be. And these, these issues that affect these organizations and affect individuals aren't just at the federal level, they occur most often or more frequently even at the state, local, even at the school board level. And the organizations we work with range from Fortune 500 companies. We have 25% of the Fortune 100 has clients and nonprofits, many nonprofits that you've heard of, for instance, someone like the American Heart Association and many nonprofits that have more niche needs or more niche interests, such as a, a farm bureau in a local jurisdiction. We have over 1,200 clients today. Talking about you know, SaaS companies, of course, you know, back then when I had less gray hair, and of course you don't age, so, and you are much younger as well, but I don't think you will age as much as I do. <laughs> you look exactly the same way as, as I do remember. <laughs> you know, back then, of course, you know, in my previous life, early 30s, I started Logi, as you said, and then all you are thinking as a kind of, you know, founder back then is how can I build this product Everything is product-centered in your mind, right? So everything is product, product, product. I just need to build it. I need to, and you may put the marketing and sales and all of those as kind of secondary in your mind because from your perspective, that's the biggest challenge you face at the beginning. And then when you experience more and more and you have more companies and growing to a certain stage and growing them bigger than just, you know, a single digit kind of revenue or ARR nowadays, then single digit million wise. But then you get to kind of the point that you realize that actually the biggest challenge that you have to face is really marketing and then sales. And then maybe if you start again, you will think about them first before you start even thinking about the product to make sure those are taken care of when you get there. So how do you see that? Because you have been in all of these stages, as you said, you have been on the product side, you have been on the sales marketing. Now you are CEO in charge of the company. You were in CEO role at Logi as well. So you have experienced a lot of these yourself. How do you see that? Yeah, so it's interesting because I would say that particularly in working with startup founders or people at the early stages, you have that, that perception, right? That I need to get the product right. I need to get the engineering right. I need to start with the engineering and I actually think the most difficult thing about scaling a software company is getting the go-to-market right. And what's interesting is making engineering decisions or making product management, you know, product feature function decisions have a long time, right? You conceive a concept, you write out the requirements, you scope it out, and then you have to build it. And there's like a three to four to five month kind of lag time for that to happen. And if you get it wrong, you're kind of done, like like you got it wrong and you have to kind of start over, right? 
I think that, that understanding the go-to-market and understanding how you're going to sell and market that product is a lot more difficult to figure out. And the reality is you don't actually need the product to do a lot of that, right? So, so there's a lot you can do with a prototype. There's a lot you can do with a concept to kind of work through those go-to-market channels to figure out, for example, who is it that I'm selling to? Is this a pain? Will you pay for this pain? Is this something that I can just put on a website and someone downloads, I take an order? Or is this someone, a salesperson needs to communicate what it is and explain it? And, or is it something that has to be bundled with services to customize and configure in order to, to solve the pain? And how much are they willing to pay for it? Because the true test to actually building a software company that gets past those first couple customers is having all those things that align and work. And if you go and you engineer a solution without thinking through those things, something's probably wrong. For example, you built a really great, phenomenal product that solves a pain that someone's willing to spend $8,000 for. Well, that's great. But if it takes a salesperson to sell it, and it takes consulting to configure it, and it takes work to make sure that they're successful, well, $8,000 may not actually be enough. You probably need a $40,000 solution in order to, to cover all those costs of sales and marketing and enablement to support that business model for it to grow. And, it, and I think it's tricky when small, you know, when you're small, that can be managed by one or two or three people that just dive in and figure it out that, that probably don't get paid full salaries. But at a million, two million, three million, you have to start scaling, you have to put that infrastructure in place, it doesn't exist. So I think it's important to spend a lot of time thinking through that, that go to market. How do you get your product from you know, from where it is to, you know, in your organization, to your target persona, to production, and testing that with prototypes, with iterations, with interviews, before you ever actually go and do the engineering work. You think of some companies in the market today, when you look at them, that they are tackling some, I would say, engineering product challenges, that there is a market for it, but nobody could do it before, right? So, you know, all of these Elon Musk's companies are really great examples of that. Everyone knew that if you have a really well-designed electric car that you can sell at 40, 60K, that that kind of, you know, level at that quality, it has a market. If you could build a rocket that does, you know, go to, you know, to international station and comes back and it's reusable, everyone wants it. But nobody could really build it or you know, there to really go there and build it. So it was really a product challenge, engineering challenge to build it, but the market was there for it, assuming you can build it. And then there are some other companies that they really go after the market challenge. And it's not really the engineering challenge. People know how to build that, but nobody maybe wants to take that market challenge to do it, create the segment, create that maybe category, create that, you know, part of the market and then really go there. Is that categorization in your mind the same when you look at the companies around you that people normally companies fall into category A or B or you see a lot of mix, a lot of other categories as well? I think there's a lot of other categories. In fact, I would argue that you probably miss the one that is the most common and that's there's an existing market, there's existing pain, but there are solutions out there to address the pain. It's just there's a way to do it slightly better. We're talking today, not on Zoom, but I spend a lot of my times on Zoom. Business to business, one-on-one -on -one video conferencing, that was an established market 
it was mature. It had consolidated to a couple of different vendors. There was pain, but people would say the pain was addressed. And then one company come in and rolled up that market and took it over by doing it just a bit better. And while I'm no expert on how Zoom did that, my understanding is they identified a pain around the kind of, it takes multiple clicks to initiate to get started and figured out how to engineer a product in a very specific way to get around those pains to be one click and be rapidly adopted. And so in, in some ways, what they did is they really just eliminated some of the kind of getting started friction. Uh, and of course their timing with COVID didn't hurt, but, but they were able to take over an existing market. And I actually think that's more of what we see, not people going out and, and solving a problem that we know exists, but no one's solving, or not, not going out and creating a new market that didn't exist, but really just incrementally operating better in an existing market. And I'll tell you, creating a market is hard. I mean, you talked about Elon Musk, the structural barriers that were in place for the electric car or for space shuttle, I mean, the regulatory barriers, the infrastructure barriers in terms of charging, that's just expensive and hard. Um, I think what, what Zoom did or some of these other markets did wasn't that hard. The other interesting challenge I would say is that I think in many of these more mature markets where there is a, a pretty meaningful opportunity, you actually find relatively high customer satisfaction. So in the mobile phone market, I'm gonna date myself and go back to, I guess it was probably 2006, right about when we met. I remember if you had called me and asked, how satisfied am I with my mobile phone? I had a BlackBerry Curve and I would have given it an 11 out of 10. It was fantastic. But the iPhone came in and incrementally improved on that, rolled up what is a mature and large market, and then ultimately expanded our definition of what a phone is. But those first iterations were basically phones. So in my mind, I see Zoom as an engineering challenge because the market existed. WebEx proved that the market is there, but they, they wanted a simpler product that you send the link, you click on it, you join the meeting, done. So that's simple. And that was a kind of engineering challenge for them to really go through and create that kind of you know, product that may be not that easy. You know, they came from WebEx, so they knew all of the engineering challenges that exist and they worked hard to really make it happen. Also, when you think about, for example, iPhone, Again, the market existed. Everyone needed a device that can check emails on it and be the phone as well and browse the internet. And at some degree, you know, a BlackBerry was mostly email kind of device. But then how do you do that with kind of one device that, you know, take you to the email in a better way or browser and music and phone? But the market was there. It was, can you build it? And that was, to me, again, falls into the category of I'm, I'm, I'm going after kind of engineering and product challenge. I know the market is there, right? So it's not a kind of market does not exist. Maybe I'm kind of looking at that uh, categorization in a simplistic way, A or B. I always envy people that really kind of so, they are so smart that they really look at the market and then they really, you know, see this is really, you know, they can create that kind of market in a very uh, smart way because the companies that, you know, I have created all the time when I look at the pattern, people tell me that it has two characteristics. Number one, you cannot pronounce the name very easily. The second characteristic is that it's a very, you know, wide platform not super easy to build it and then it takes years and a lot of time but 
at the end it turns out to be good product people use it but you know it's not super easy could you couldn't you create easier name to pronounce an easier product like that can be built easier faster quicker to go to market that's so probably that's good a, feedback arman uh, you might take that feedback it's a good idea <laughs> <laughs> i will say though to some degree like the easy stuff like a lot of people could do it. Like you have to do something kind of hard. And, and you speak to the Zoom use case. You know, I say it was a simple incremental change. That was that was probably a pretty difficult engineering challenge to overcome. So it's probably not that simple. So I, you know, I think sometimes from the outside in, we look at these things and say, oh, it wasn't that hard. But it was it was really a lot more complicated. Otherwise, other people would have done it. But I will say, you know, most of these companies take one little niche part of the problem and focus on that and address it. And then you know, you look at them ten years later. And they've gone way past that, right? They've, they they accomplish a million things, but what ultimately drove that that first kind of step function of success was just looking at one variable a little bit differently. And that's because building a company is hard. You know, this company when I joined is not a, a startup, right? It's a, it's a private equity back, or you know, a little bit bigger. And so you know, it's interesting because you walk in and you look at how companies do things, and they tend to try and do things very differently in a lot of different places. And you know, innovate, innovate, innovate. And I said, well, innovation's a tricky thing because innovation's messy. It's not very, you know, it's not very predictable where you're going to end up. It's hard to train people. You don't know if it's better or worse than the way you were doing it before. So you have to be really careful about innovation. So I, I like to look at it and say, 90% of what we do, we're going to deploy best practice. We're going to find the 10% that makes us unique and special and different, and we're going to innovate there. But we actually don't want to be innovative across most of our areas. We want to take the things that have been proven thousands of times to work and that we have benchmarks that we can compare ourselves to and, and do that <laughs> because I can hire easier. I can train people faster. I can see if I'm doing better or not. I can get a sense of if I spend time here, how much improvement are we going to get? And then choose that 10% very carefully as to where we're really going to be innovate and really going to be different. That's a good point because as the organization gets bigger and you are making bigger changes on the product side and innovate, then that requires more communication with marketing, more communication with market, more communication with sales and sales training. And all of these need to happen every time you are changing and changing and changing. And to the point that it may exhaust your kind of resources and energy to do that versus focusing on really marketing and sales and, and move forward with expanding sales and marketing much faster. So it might be the exact reason that big, big companies rather to, you know, just uh, work, partner, acquire startups, smaller companies who can, you know, innovate better and they're more nimble rather than really start innovation within the company, even though it seems like they have more resources and experience and talent and intelligence to do that. But at the same time, it's just that factor that you mentioned that, if you really wanted to you know, make a lot of changes inside the company, then you're slowing down on the sales and maybe on the marketing. Yes, and, and I also think the reason that it often works for a larger company to acquire those smaller companies is because those larger companies have the benefit of that, again, going back to where we started the conversation, existing go-to-market infrastructure and channels, right? There's a lot of friction in selling a product to a new company, right? got to find the right person. You got to sell the value proposition. You got to find if there's a budget. You got to build consensus or at least 
identify all the stakeholders to get in. You have to have a price negotiation. There's typically a contract negotiation. There may be a security review. I mean, there's all this stuff that has to occur. Well, a bigger company acquiring another company, all of a sudden you have an existing customer base that you can go to where you know who to call. You already have a contract on file. There's already existing pricing. You know who the stakeholders are. Like a lot of that you know, makes it easier, which is how sometimes these big companies are able to create such meaningful value out of bringing in a smaller company that doesn't have access to those things. Again, it, it speaks to the challenges of go-to-market in a software company. One of the aspects that I always thought that uh, you're exceptionally good at it is dealing with numbers, figures, analyzing, looking at your Excel and just seeing it in a totally kind of quick way, analyzing segment, you know, putting the segments there. And and, and that's something that I'm, I'm pretty sure it has helped you quite a bit on the business side, whenever you get into, you know, an organization or the companies that maybe on the side you're working with them, startups that you advise or invest. But how do you see companies in general have gone through that phase of becoming more data savvy? And how do you see an organization that has the data culture versus doesn't have the data culture, doesn't really dig down into their data, don't do the analytics that they should versus the company that culturally does that with everything they do. Of course, I'm coming from analytics. You come from analytics. We have experience there. But in personal experience as a person that not just, you know, we know analytics, but as a person, I think, you know, you do it in action. You know, you lead by example that everything you do is so data oriented and looking at the data and everything. I wanted to get your perspective on that. Because I have seen that, that, you know, you do it pretty well in what you do. Well, thanks for that. And to be fair, I probably have a bias, as you do, towards looking at data and data-informed decision-making. You know, I, I think the reality is that, well, there's two things I'll comment on. First, I think when you're small, it's not as necessary. And, and why do I say it's not as necessary? Well, you don't necessarily have all of the data points. You're not talking about 1,000 customers. You're talking about 17 or 70. And most people can keep that kind of straight in their head. And, and to be fair, you're probably, you know, as you're thinking about growing your business, you're probably less concerned about like the retention rate of your existing customers and more concerned about going out and getting new and expansion customers. So, so looking internally might actually be the wrong signal for what the market needs or what those market problems are. And it's typically a couple of individuals that are managing all this and working more on what they see and what they feel and what they infer. And it can work. And I think it can get to a certain level. I think the challenge becomes one of large numbers, right? As the numbers get bigger, it's really, really hard to keep those in your head. And, you know, all sorts of things that us as humans have been fine, like recency bias and things along those lines will start to pop in. And you'll start having meetings and conversations where there's a lot of I thinks. And the problem with I thinks are when you're not one or two people and you got seven people, it's lots of people think different things. And so in an organization that's, that's culture is very much a yes person culture, that's bad because he who thinks or she who thinks and has the highest rank in the organization is what happens. And that isn't necessarily the right information that's happening. And in a consensus-driven culture, one that, that pushes decision-making down, you can end up having conversations where lots of people think different things and you're not necessarily rowing the, the same way. So I think there's a, a ton of inefficiency that gets introduced as you get into larger organizations and, and you have to come back to data. Now, by that same token, and again, I'll go back to something I mentioned earlier, software companies now and SaaS software companies and metrics and measures of functional areas here is, is fairly mature. So there's pretty standard ways to look 
at your data and to look at what you're doing and to measure what you're doing against benchmarks. So one of the things I did when I first joined here is I said, I want to understand why customers fire us. Like, why does someone leave? And I got a lot of I thinks. And what it came down to is, okay, well, let's identify very defined codes of outcomes as to why someone leaves. And the first question I got was price, price. They leave because of price. They leave because of price. And I said, well, is it price or is it we're not delivering enough value? And if we're not delivering enough value, why are we not delivering enough value? And you can start to kind of go down that chain and classify those churn and then figure out, okay, well, why do they churn and what percent of churn is driven by what kind of activity and how does this compare to benchmarks? And you can start to think about, well, how do we address this? Do we address this by not, not working with certain kinds of clients that have a high propensity to churn? Do we go after this by you know, having a different kind of renewal process? Is it that they have trouble onboarding or is it that they have trouble with the end of the contract? Like, what is the issues? And data allows you to make those decisions, but most importantly, data allows you to get everybody pulling in the same direction because there's no debate over what I think. It's, this is what it is. And I think it's really important, but it does take a maturity of an organization to do that. I also think with data though, and this is something I see all the time, is there's a tendency to do what a, a mutual and former colleague of yours always used to refer to as, as weather reports. We sold X amount to this segment. This segment has a churn rate of Y. Uh, we're selling more to this vertical. A lot of just kind of statements of fact that I would describe as a descriptive analytics, like it is what it is, but not actually taking that and making it kind of what is the down low? What is the actionable? What is the conclusion that I need to draw from all these independent data sets? And that's a hard skill, and it's a really hard skill to find, but critically important. One tool I use when I get a weather report deck or you know a bunch of analysis, that's what I would call a weather report, and a series of slides, Google Slides is what we use here, I'll say, I want you to go back to all of these slides, and at the bottom, put an arrow. And you need to give me one sentence, and by the way, one sentence, 14-point font, can't word wrap, okay? So, so very tight, that tells me what my takeaway here is. And if there's multiple takeaways on the slide, then break into multiple slides. But more often than not, there's no takeaway on the slide. Like, I don't know what to do with it. And the slide just needs to go. And put it in the appendix if you think it's still important information. And, and that's a skill that I, I, that I see, a gap that I see in a lot of, a lot of analyst skill sets and, and, frankly, a lot of executive skill sets. When it comes to the products in the market, so, you know, any business application, very, very simplistically looking at it, it helps people to get the data in and then helps them to get the data out. It might be a CRM application. It might be an association management system. It might be investment management software. You know, all of those examples, zillions of them, HR management, everything. And in early days, let's say, for example, 20 years ago, I could see a lot of still applications, solutions coming. Even when SaaS started, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I could see a lot of solutions that helps people to collect data and gradually, I see more and more companies that improve and they are talking about getting the data out part. And I see a lot of analytic solutions in the market that sometimes they do nothing but just the data that you have just collecting them, helping you to analyze it. And the way I have seen the trends, especially when I look at the startup as the way to see the future, because these are going to grow and become the future, I see more and more ratios of companies that are introducing themselves as 
we are analytic applications, meaning that we go to real estate and carve out this part of data for this part of market, for example, or we are in industry that let's say hospitalization and we manage to provide you information about the pricing on the hotels or whatever, right? So those kind of things that all comes from the data that either exist or they can easily put together, but a lot of logic and algorithms about really getting the data out. How do you see that trend going? Have you experienced it yourself? I think even in the company that right now you are involved, you might see part of it that more and more you guys are thinking about how to get the data out better, more automated, more intelligent way to our customers, users, or you may not have seen that trend that's always going to be a blend and probably the right that did the same ratio they have seen. I think almost every application will become an analytic application in some way, shape, or form. I think it is going to take input, be it from third-party systems, be it from user activity, be it from choices, whatever it may be, and will help provide a guided experience to the end user and, and, and built for that persona of that end user to provide a more, you know, a richer end user experience. And, and we see this in consumer applications. I mean, Jeff Bezos knows more about my life than my wife does, right? In terms of what gets advertised to me on Amazon and things along those lines, that, that is an analytic application. I booked a flight today with United. That is an analytic application that is filtering which airlines I use and what packages I use. It's probably pricing in a, in a fairly custom way as well. You know, an example I use all the time, or I've used historically, Sheets Gas Station. I mean, talk about a brick and mortar product that you would think of as not an analytic application. Yet I use that application on my phone to order ahead. It has saved things. It makes recommendations for me. It does MTO so I can pick it up on the way on a trip. I mean, talk about a brick and mortar thing that is now an analytic application that, by the way, I use them over everybody else because it's easier. It understands me and it provides greater value to me. So I think almost every application is going to become an analytic application. I don't believe in standalone analytic and BI systems as the end-all be-all, precisely because you have to match an application to persona. An application has to map to the usability of the user using that application. And a standalone BI or analyst tool is not gonna be mapped to that persona. However, an application designed by a product manager is by definition, or if done well, mapped to a persona. I think it's the future, and I think that we see it happening all of the time in all sorts of applications. I frankly think our maturity in terms of how sophisticated these applications are going to be is in the first or second inning. It's very early stage, and I think if product managers aren't thinking about that, then, then they're probably not great product managers. To be honest with you, every time I think that, you know, how many other SaaS applications might ever be created, and we already have a lot of SaaS products and companies that started every year, then I just, you know, walk into one of these events that you can find many of them in the Bay Area. And then you hear all of these great ideas from many different countries or different regions or different founders that they say, wow, I never thought about these applications or this way of looking at data. And, and it's endless. It's amazing. It always amazed me that so many different ways you can really, there are so much data that we are not even looking at it. And it's still there are way to go and years to go to really just understand all of these 
automations and all of these analytics and even automated analytics that probably is the next phase that you will see a lot. I've long believed that the embedding of models in traditional like consumer facing or business user facing applications is that next wave. To be fair, I've thought it was coming for 12 years and I don't I don't think we're still at that maturity yet or at least that broad-based adoption stage, but I still believe it's coming. There's a local company here called Churn Zero, for example, that's attempting to do that on the customer success and renewal side. So, you know, you are seeing these things start to kind of stand up, but it still feels very basic, feels very age. And, and some of that comes down to the maturity of our end users, right? You come back to the persona. There are certain segments where we've gone from, uh, I would argue, not technology sophisticated end users, marketing, for example, where it was brand, it was collateral, it was events, to a very technical, analytic, heavy role with demand gen and things along those lines. But you know, not all roles are super technically savvy. I would argue that the business that I'm in here at Capital Canary, we work with people that, that are responsible for working with governments. That's primarily a relationship-driven type role, not a technology demand gen messaging and tracking and all that sort of stuff. But, but in our space, we're seeing significant maturation of technology to support that function. And over time, we'll see more and more. But like for analytics, we can do some, but this is you know, very basic stuff at this stage. So I think we'll see it develop differently in different verticals. And do you see, for example, in Capital Canary, you guys are really in a position that you are increasingly creating value out of data or you are still selling software versus selling data and it's going to be the future? Yeah, so that's a great question. So, so, so first off, on the legislative or on the intelligence side, everything that we provide is in the public domain. What do we get? We gather legislative information from websites, from minutes, from things that are being posted in freedom of information, you know, that are that's publicly available information, contact data. I mean, many of these localities post these things. But if you're at a large organization responsible for understanding, you know, cell phone restrictions across the country or cell phone tower restrictions, how are you going to do that by hand? Are you going to go manage all these websites? Like, like, so where we provide value and where we reduce friction is by gathering that information and organizing it and providing some level of uh, retrieval mechanisms, knowledge base and things along those lines to find it. Um, so really, we're just data aggregators in its most simplest sense. Now, that, that provides tremendous value, but that's really what we are. Now, on the advocacy side, this is where we really are allowing organizations to mobilize individuals to speak up on particular issues to their legislators. We really reduce friction, right? So historically, especially in the nonprofit side, this was hand petitions. Now, through technology, people can reach out and find people that want to speak on behalf of an issues and, and speak on behalf of issues via all manner of mechanisms, right? It's not just a petition, it's a phone call. We can facilitate phone calls to legislators at whatever level, school board level, federal level. We can facilitate email messages. We can even capture videos. I have a great video of one of our clients talking about how important solar energy tax credits are uh, and how they're very supportive of these things and how they're driving adoption of alternative energy in their particular area. And that's the sort of stuff that was just very hard to get and very hard to collect. And it's really valuable stuff. We really reduce friction in that process and provide a way to gather and collect more voices than were previously possible, which is in many ways what democracy is really about. I'm going to ask you the last question about maybe a book that you can recommend, either you know something that you have seen it might help the audience or it has had a great impact on you and the way you conduct business. 
something that can resonate with SaaS companies or in general, sometimes, you know, it might be something about team building that, you know, some people have recommended. So if you have any particular publication in mind. Sure. Yeah. So, so any book by Patrick Lencioni comes highly recommended for me. And if you, if you had to choose just a couple, I would say the advantage and five dysfunctions of a team are really key. So these books, by the way, are very small. Like you can sit down, just sit down and, and read them in a, in a quick reading. And he's got, I think, seven or 10 of them. But they're, they're mostly about organizational health and team leadership and teamwork and things along those lines. But I think the true measure of, of how much value a business book delivers is what can you remember three months from now, four months from now, five months from now, not when you're actually sitting down reading it. And the takeaways and the phrases and the quotes that come in there, frankly, become part of my lexicon. They become part of what I say and how I manage and how I think and the message that I convey internally. So like some of the things I say a lot is I say clarity over certainty. And that's a phrase that, that he uses in a lot of his books, right? So it's much more important when leading a team to give them clarity than to wait to make sure that it's perfect. Because I think all too often we get to 80% and we stall waiting for that 20% of certainty. And the reality is we don't get there and there's a cost to stalling. Uh, humble, hungry, smart. The great phrase he uses about evaluating people that are going to be great parts of a team moving forward is the attributes that you want to look for. And I'll leave you with one kind of final phrase that he says, because there's, there's hundreds of them that are just so good. If everything is important, then nothing is. It's a great concept around focus and around the idea of you can't do it all. And if you try to do it all, you're choosing not to do anything very well or to put your focus on any one thing. And so you have to decide what are you going to do really well and make it very defined and say no to a lot of good ideas because they're not necessarily a good idea for that organization. So I'll leave you with that. Patrick Lencioni, great reads, very short throw them in your bag. Uh, I like to reread them when I'm on vacation because they're just so quick reads you can pick up and put down. Yeah, and that's a very great point to end our conversation with. And I would say it's not easy to focus, but it's the key <laughs> if you want to be successful. You got it. And it's hard because you get a lot of pulls in different directions. It's hard, but very key. Thanks again, Stephen, for joining us. It was a great session. Thank you very much, Armand. It was great to see you again. Thank you for listening to SaaS Scaled with Arman Ishragi. For show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, go to sasscaled.com. If you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curvey.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot com.